0: Chapter One of the Fortieth Door This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Fortieth Door by Mary Hastings Bradley. Chapter One A Rash Promise. He didn't want to go. He loathed the very thought of it. Every flinching nerve in him protested a masked ball, a masked ball at a Cairo hotel, grimacing through peep-holes, self-conscious advances, flirtations ending in giggles, tourists as nuns, tourists as Turks, tourists as God knows what, all preening and peacocking. Unhappily he gazed upon the girl who was proposing this horror as a bright delight. She was a very engaging girl, that was the mischief of it. She stood smiling there in the bright Egyptian sunshine, gay confidence in her grey eyes, He hated to shatter that confidence. And he had done little enough for her during her stay in Cairo. One tea at the Gezira Palace Hotel, one trip to the Sultan al-Hassan Mosque, one excursion through the bazaars, not exactly an orgy of entertainment for a girl from home. He had evaded climbing the pyramids, and fled from the ostrich farm. He had withheld from inviting her to the camp on the edge of the Libyan desert, where he was excavating. Although her party had shown unmistakable signs, of a willingness to be diverted from the beaten path of his travel and he was not calling on her now he had come to cairo for supplies and she had encountered him by chance on a corner of the crowded mograbi and there promptly she had invited him to tonight's nights ball but it's out of my line you know jenny he was protesting i'm so fearfully out of dancing more reason to come jack you need a change from digging up ruins all the time it must be frightfully lonely out there in the desert i can't think how you stand it jack rider smiled there was no mortal use in explaining to jenny Jeffreys that his life on the desert was the only life in the world that his ruins held more thrills than all the fevers of her tourist crowds and that he would rather gaze upon the mummied effigy of any lady of the dynasty of amenhotep than upon the freshest and fairest of the damsels of the present day it would only tax Jinny's credulity and hurt her feelings. And he liked Jinny, though not as much as he liked Queen Hatasu or the little nameless creature he had dug out of a king's anteroom. Jinny was an interfering modern. She was the incarnation of impossible demands. But, of course, there was no real reason why he should not stop over and go to the dance. Ten minutes later, when she had extracted his promise and abandoned him to the customers, He was scourging his weakness. He had known better. Very well, then, let him take his medicine. Let him go as—here he disgustedly eyed the garment that the Greek was presenting—as little Lord Fauntleroy, He deserved it. Shudderingly he looked away from the pretty velvet suit. He scorned the monk's robes that were too redolent of former wearers. He rejected the hot livery of a Russian mujik. He flouted the banality. Of the Pirot pantaloons. Thankfully he remembered McLean. Kilts, that was the thing. Tartans, the real Scotch plaids. Some use now, McLean's precious sporans. He'd look him up at once. Out of the crowded Magrabi, he made his way on foot to the Espakia quarters where the streets were wider and emptier of Karen traffickers and shrill itinerants and laden camels and jostling donkeys. It was a glorious day. A day of Egypt's blue and gold, the sun was a wash of watercolor. the streets a flood of molten amber. A little wind from the north rustled the acacias and blew in his bronze face cool reminders of the widening Nile and dancing waves. He remembered a chap he knew who had a sailing canoe, but no, he was going to get a costume for a fool ball. Disgustedly, he turned into the very modern and official-looking residence that was the home of his friend Andrew McLean and the offices of that far reaching institution, the Agricultural Bank. A white robed, red sashed, and red fezzed houseboy led him across the tiled entrance, into the long room where McLean was concluding a conference with two men. Not the least trace, McLean was saying. We've questioned all our native agents. Afterwards, Ryder remembered that indefinite little pause. If the two men had not lingered, if McLean had not remembered that he was an excavator, if chance had not brushed the scales with lightning wings. "'Ever hear of a chap called Delcasse? Paul Delcasse, a French excavator?' McLean suddenly asked of him. "'Disappeared in the desert about fifteen years ago.' "'He was reported, monsieur, to have died of the fever,' one of the men explained. McLean introduced him as a special agent from France his companion was one of the secretaries of the French legation. They were trying every quarter for traces of this Delcasse. Ryder's memory darted back to old library shelves. He saw a thin brown volume, almost uncut. He wrote a book about the tomb of Ty. he said suddenly. Paul Delcasse, I remember it very well. Now that he thought of it, the memory was clear. It was one of those books that had whetted his passion for the past, when his student mind was first kindling to buried cities and forgotten tombs and all the strange store and loot of time paul Delcasse, he didn't remember a word of the book but he remembered that he had read it with absorption and now the special agent delighted at the recognition was talking eagerly of the writer he was a brilliant young man monsieur but he was of no importance to his generation and he becomes so now through the whim of a capricious woman To disinherit her other heirs. After all this time, she has decided to make active inquiries. But you said that Delcasse had died. He left a wife and child. Her letters of her husband's death reached his relatives in France. Then nothing more. They feared that the same fever. But nothing positively was known. A sad story, monsieur. This Delcasse was young and adventurous and an ardent explorer, an ardent lover, too. "'for he brought a beautiful French wife "'to share the hazards of his expedition.' "'An ardent idiot,' thrust in McLean unfeelingly, "'knockin' a woman about the desert. "'Not much of a clue after all these years,' he concluded, "'with a very British air of dismissal.' "'But the French agent was not to be sundered from the American, "'who remembered the book of Delcasse. "'From his pocket he took a leather case, "'and from the case a large and ornate gold locket. His picture, monsieur.' he pressed the spring, and offered Ryder the miniature. It was done in France, before he returned on that last trip, and was left with the aunt. It is said to be a good likeness. Ryder looked down upon the young face presented to his gaze, with a feeling of sympathy for this unlucky searcher of the past, who had left his own secret in the sands he had come to conquer. Sympathy mingled with blank wonder at the insanity which had brought a woman with it. McLean couldn't understand a man's doing it jack Ryder couldn't understand a man's wanting to do it love to Ryder was incomprehensible idiocy woman as far as he was concerned had never been created she was still a spectacle an historical record an uncomprehended motive nice looking chap he commented briefly fingering the curious old case as he handed it back i'll keep up the increase, mclean assured them but as i said nothing will come of it it's been fifteen years One more grain lost in the desert of sand. By luck, you know, you might just stumble on something. Some native who knew the story. But if fever carried them off and the Arabs rifled their camp, as I fancy, they'll jolly well keep their mouths shut. No white man will know. I don't advise your people to spend much money on the search. Odd the inquiries we get, he commented to Ryder, when the Frenchmen had completed their courteous farewells. I think the bank was a bureau of information. "'Yesterday there was a stir about two crazy lads "'who are supposed to have joined the pilgrims in disguise.' "'Of course, our clerks are cops, and do pick up a bit. "'And the cops will talk. "'I say, Jack, what are you doing?' "'He broke off to demand in astonishment, "'for Jack Ryder had seated himself upon a divan "'and was absorbedly rolling up his trouser-leg. "'The dare Egyptian flea,' he added, "'Not at all. I am looking at my knees,' said Ryder glumly. "'I just remembered that I have to show them to-night. "'A ball, in masquerade, at a hotel, tourist crowd. "'How do you think they'll look with one of your scotch platties atop?' he inquired feelingly. "'Fascinating, Jack, fascinating,' said the promptly sardonic McLean. "'You, at a masquerade. "'So that's what brought you to town?' he cocked a taunting eye at him. "'Well, well, she must be a most engaging young person. "'You'll be taking her out in the desert with you now, "'like our friend El Cass. "'A pleasant, retired spot for a body to have his honeymoon. "'No distractions of society. undiluted companionship, you may say. "'Now what made you think she'd like your knees?' "'He murmured contemplatively. "'Aren't you just a bit previous? "'Apt to startle and frighten the lady?' "'Oh, go on, go on,' Ryder exhorted bitterly i like it it's better than i can do myself go on but while you're talking trot out your tartans something clannish now one of those ancestral rigs that you are always cherishing rich and red to set off my dark handsome type set off he'll be jack dear promised mclean dragging out a huge chest set off he'll be set off he was and a fool he felt himself that night as he confronted his brilliant image in the glass. A Scot of the Scots, kilted in vivid plaid, a rakish cap on his black hair, a tartan draped across his shoulder, short heavy stockings clasping his legs, and low shoes gay with big buckles. "'Oh, young Lochnevor has come out to the whist,' warbled McLean merrily, as he straightened the shoulder-pin of silver and Scotch topaz. "'Out of Hades,' said Ryder rather pointlessly, for he felt it was Hades he was going into. Chiefly he was concerned with his knees, and the striking contrast between their sheltered whiteness and the desert brown of his face. Milky pale they gleamed at him from the glass. Bony and hard they flaunted their angles at every move. He was grateful that he was not a centipede. Oh, 'twas t'was all for my rightful king that I gared over the border. T'was all for—'You didn't tell me her name now, Jack.' "'Where's my mask?' Ryder was muttering. "'I say, aren't there any pockets in these confounded petticoats?' "'In the sparring man, there.' MacLean at last withheld his hand from its handiwork. "'Druck, ye are a grand sight,' he pronounced with a special Scottish burr. "'If ye did want her now, Bonnie Charlie's now away,' he sung as Ryder, With a last darkling look at his vivid image, strode towards the door. "'He's away, all right, and he'll be back again as soon as he can make it.' With this cheerless anticipation of the evening's promise, the departing one stalked like an exiled steward to his waiting carriage. For a moment more, McLean kept the ironic smile alive upon his lips as he listened to the rattle of the wheels and the harsh gutturals of the driver. Then the smile died as he turned back into the room. Eh, but wouldn't you like it though, Andy? He said to himself. If some girl now liked you enough to get you to go to one of these dumb things, the lucky dog. End of chapter one. Chapter two of the fortieth door. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Fortieth Door by Mary Hastings Bradley. Chapter two. Masks and maskers. Moors and Juliet's and Circassian slaves and knights-at-arms were fast emerging from lift or cloakroom, and confronting each other through their masks in sheepish defiance and curiosity. Adventurous spirits were circulating. Voices, lowered and guarded, began to engage in nervous, tittering banter. Laughter, belatedly smothered, flared to betrayals. The orchestra was playing a Viennese waltz and couple after couple slipped out upon the floor. Lounging against the wall, Ryder glowered mockingly through his mask-holes at the motley. It was so exactly as he had foreseen. He was bored, and he was going to be more bored. He was jostled, and he was going to be more jostled. He was hot, and he was going to be hotter. Where in the world was Ginny Jeffries? He deserved, he felt, exhilaratingly kind treatment, to compensate him for this insanity. He gazed about, and, encountering a plump shepherdess ogling him, he stepped hastily behind a palm. He fairly stepped upon a very small person in black—a phantom-like small person, with the black silk hubera of the Mohammedan high-caste woman drawn down to her very brows, and over the entire face the black street veil—not a feature visible, not an eyebrow, not an eyelash not a hint of the small person herself, except a very small, white, ringed hand, lifted as if in defence of his clumsiness. "'Sorry,' said Ryder quickly, and driven by the instinct of reparation. "'Won't you dance?' A mute shake of the head. Well, his duty was done. But something, the very lack of all invitation in the Black Phantom, made him linger. He repeated his request in French. From behind the veil came a liquidly soft voice with a note of mirth. "'I understand the English, monsieur,' it informed him. "'Enough, then, to say yes in it?' The black phantom shook its head. "'My education, alas, has only proceeded to the end.' Her speech was quaint, unhesitating, but oddly inflected. "'I regret, but I am not acquainted with the yes.' "'A gay character for a masked ball!' indifference and pique swung rider towards a geisha girl but a trace of irritation lingered and he found her you likey plink glacier singularly witless he'd tell mclean just how darn captivating his outfit was he promised himself and then he caught sight of a familiar pair of grey eyes smiling over the white veil of an odalisque jinny jeffries was wearing one of the many costumes there that passed for oriental a glittering assemblage of Turkish trousers and Circassian veils, silver shawls, and necklaces and wide bracelets banding bare arms. As an effect, it was distinctly successful. Ten thousand dinars could not pay for the chicken she has eaten, uttered Ryder appreciatively in the language of the old slave market, and stepped promptly ahead of a stout pantalon. Jack, you did come. There was a note in the girl's voice as if she had disbelieved in her good fortune. Oh, and beautiful as Roderick Jew. Didn't I tell you that you could find something in that shop? she declared in triumph. Do you imagine that this came out of a customer's? Brider swung her swiftly out in the foxtrot before the crowd invaded the floor. If Andy McLean could hear you, why, this, this is the real thing the Scots, what hey wi wallens' blood stuff. Who is Andy McLean? "'Andrew is Scotch, single, and sceptical. "'He's a great pal of mine, "'and also an official of the Agricultural Bank, "'which is by way of being a government institution. "'These are the togs of his Highland grandsire. "'Why didn't you bring him?' Too dead, unfortunately. Grandsires often are. "'I mean Andrew McLean. "'It would take you, my dear Jinny, to do that. "'You brought me, and I can believe in anything, "'after the surprise of finding myself here.' Jenny Jeffreys laughed.' If I could only believe what you say. Oh, you can believe anything I say, Jack obligingly assured her. I'm very careful of what I say. I wish I were. You'd have to be careful how you look, Jinny, and you can't help that. The Lord who gave you red hair must provide the way to elude its consequences. I suppose the Orient isn't exactly a manless Sahara for you. She countered, her bright eyes intent. Is it a girlless Sahara for you, Jack? The only woman I have laid a hand on, in kindness or unkindness, died before Ptolemy built Dendera. That's not right. No? And I thought it was such a virtuous record. I mean, Jinny laughed, that you really ought to be seeing more of life, like tonight. To night? Do you imagine this is a place for seeing life? Why not? she retorted to the irony in his voice. It's real people, not just dead and gone things in cases with their lives all lived. I don't care if you are going to be a very famous person, Jack. You ought to see more of the world. You have just been buried out here for two years, ever since you left college. Beneath his mask, the young man was smiling. A quaint feminine notion that life was to be encountered at a masquerade. This motley of hot, overdressed, wrought up idiots. A human contact? Life? Living? Thank you. He preferred the sane young English officials, the comradeship of his chief the glamour of his desert tombs. Of course, there was a loneliness in the desert. That was part of the big feeling of it, the still, stealing sense of immensity reaching out its shadowy hands for you. Loneliness and restlessness. These tropic nights, when the stars burned low and bright, and the hot sands seemed breathing. Loneliness and restlessness, but they gave a man dreams. And were those dreams to be realized here? The music stopped, and the ever-watchful pantalon bore down upon them. Abandoning Jinny to her fate, Ryder sought refuge in a cigarette. The hall was crowded now. The ball was a flash of color, a whirl of satins and spangles and tulle and gauze, gold and green and rose and sapphire, gyrating madly in vivid projection against the black and white stripes of the Moorish walls. The color and the music had sent their quickening reactions among the throng masks were lending audacity to mischief and high spirits three little Pirettes scampered through the crowd pelting right and left with confetti and balloons and two stalwart monks in a thin hamlet pursued them keeping up the bombardment amid a great combustion of balloons a spangled harlequin snatched his hands full of confetti and darted behind a palm it was the palm of the black phantom the palm of rider's rebuff Perhaps the Harlequin had met repulse here, too, and cherished resentment, not a very malicious resentment, but a mocking feint of it, for when Ryder turned sharply after him, oddly he himself was strolling toward that nook, he found Harlequin circling with mock entreaties about the stubbornly refusing black domino. "'Will you, won't you, will you, won't you, won't you join the dance?' chanted Harlequin, with a shower of confetti flung at the girl's averted face. There was such a shrinking of genuine fright in her withdrawal, that Ryder had a fine thrill of rescue. My dance, he declared, laying an intervening hand on her muffled arm. His tartan-draped shoulder crowded the harlequin from sight. She raised her head. The black street veil was flung back, but a black yasmuk was hiding all but her eyes. Great dark eyes they were, deep as night and soft as shadows, arched with exquisitely curved brows like the sweep of wild birds' wings, the most lovely eyes that dreams could bring. A flash of relief shone through their childish fright. With sudden confidence she turned to Ryder. "'Thank you. My education, monsieur, has proceeded to the teas,' she told him, with a nervous little laugh over her chagrin, drowned in a burst of louder laughter from the discomfited Harlequin, who turned on his heel and then bounded after fresh prey. "'Shall we dance or promenade?' asked Ryder hesitatingly her gaze met his red and gold and green and blue flecks of confetti were glimmering like fish scales over her black wrap and were even entangled drolly in the absurd lengths of her eyelashes it is if i have not forgotten how to dance she murmured if it is a waltz perhaps it was a waltz Ryder had an odd impression of her irresolution before with strange eagerness he swept her into the music Within the clumsy bulk of her draperies, his arm felt the slightness of her young form. She was no more than a child. No child, either, at a masquerade, but a fairy, dancing in the moonlight. She was a leaf, blowing in the breeze. She was the very breeze, and the moonlight. And then, to his astonishment, the dance was over. Those moments had seemed no more than one. "'We must have the next,' he said quickly. "'What made you think you had forgotten?' "'It is nearly four years, monsieur, since I have danced with a man.' "'With a man? You've been dancing with girls, then?' She nodded. "'At a school?' "'At a—a a sort of school.' The black domino laughed with ruefulness. "'At a very dull sort of school.' "'To which I hope you are not to return?' She made no answer to that, unless it was a sigh that slipped out. "'At any rate,' he said cheerily, "'you are dancing to-night?' "'To-night, yes.' Tonight I am dancing. There was triumph in her young voice. Triumph and faint defiance, and gaiety again in her changing eyes. Extraordinary those eyes, innocent, audacious, bewildering. To look down into them produced the oddest of excitement. He took off his mask. Masks were hindering things. He could see so much better without. She too could see better, could see him better. Shyly, yet intently, her gaze took note of him, of the clean, clear-cut young face, bronzed and rather thin, of the dark hair that looked darker against the scarlet cap, of the deep-set eyes, hazel-brown, that met her so often and were so full of contradictory things, life and humour and frank simplicity and subtle eagerness. He looked so young and confident and handsome. "'You're a Scotchman?' slipped out from her black yasmuk. "'Only in costume.' i'm an american she repeated it a little musingly i do not think i have ever met an american young man she added i have met old ones yes and middle-aged ones and the women but a young one no a retired spot that school of yours said ryder appreciatively you are french that is for your imagination teasingly she laughed i am monsieur only a black domino it was the loveliest laugh rider was instantly aware and the loveliest voice in the world yes and the loveliest eyes he forgot the crowd he forgot the heat he forgot alas jinny jeffries he was aware of an intense exhilaration a radiant sense of well-being and at the music's beginning of a small palm pressed again to his a light form within his arm of shy enchanting eyes out from the shrouding black Do put that veil away, he youthfully entreated. It's quite time. The others are almost all unmasked. Her glance about the room returned to him with mock plaintiveness. She shook her head as they spun lightly about a corner. Perhaps, monsieur, I have an unfortunate nose. My nerves are strong, but why afflict them? Prankishly, her eyes sparkled up at him over the black veil that made her a mystery. Enjoy the present, monsieur. Are you enjoying it? Her lashes dropped like black butterflies she was a changeling of a girl veering from gaiety to shyness her gaze was now on her wrist-watch a slender blaze of platinum and diamonds the present yes she said in a muffled little voice he bent his head to hear her through the veil a tormenting curiosity was assailing him it had become not enough to know that she was young and slender with enchanting eyes and a teasing spirit of wit vaguely he had thought her to be french one of the quaint jean so rarely taken travelling. But who was she? A child at her first ball? But what in the world was she doing back in the palms away from her chaperon? He realised, even in the cloud of his fascination, that French jean are not wanted to lurk about palms at a ball. Was she a little Cinderella, then, slipping among the guests, some poor companion stealing in for fun? She was too young, and there was that watch, That glitter of diamonds upon her wrist. Have you just come to Cairo? She shook her head. For some time I have been here. Up the Nile yet? The Nile? No, monsieur. But you are going? That, that I do not know. Some time perhaps. She sounded guarded. He hurried into revelations. I am not staying far from Cairo myself. I'm an excavator. "'on an expedition from an American museum.' "'Ah, you dig?' "'Well, not personally. "'But the expedition digs. "'We've had some bully finds.' "'And you came from America to dig in the sands?' "'The black domino laughed softly. "'For how long, monsieur?' "'This is my second year.' "'Still laughing, she shook her shrouded little head at him. "'But I cannot understand. "'What wonderful thing do you hope to find? "'What buried secret?' "'Nothing half as wonderful as to know who you are,' he said boldly. "'That—that I do not know. "'Sometime, perhaps.' "'But not beyond discovery,' he told her very gaily and confidently, "'and danced the music out. "'As the last strains died, they paused for an instant, "'as if the spell still bound them. "'Then his arms fell slowly away, "'and he heard the girl draw a quick startled breath. "'Her eyes sped to that tiny blazing watch.' When she lifted them, he thought he surprised a gleam of panic. "'How fast is an hour?' she said with an excited little laugh. "'Time is a a very sudden thing.' "'Sudden, indeed! How long since he had been a badly bored, impatient young man, mocking the follies of the masquerade? How long since he had danced with Jinny, flouting her notion of this sort of thing as life? How long since he had looked into a pair of dark, disquieting eyes, listened to a gay little voice?' Many important things in life happened suddenly. Juliet happened very suddenly to Romeo. Romeo happened as suddenly to Juliet. But Jack Ryder was not remembering anything about Romeo and Juliet. He was watching that glance steal to the wristwatch again. Then, as if with a determination of spirit, they smiled up at him. "'Monsieur the American,' said the black domino, "'you have been most kind to an an incognita of a mask.' I hope that you dig out of your sands all the secrets that you most desire. You sound as if you were saying good-bye, said Jack Ryder, with quick denial in his blood. The smile in her eyes flickered. Perhaps I have kept you too long from the other guests. He shook his head. They don't exist. Ah, then I will give you the chance to say nice things to them. But I never say nice things unless I mean them. Never, monsieur? Never. I am very careful what I say he assured her even as he had assured another girl in what different meaning hours or centuries before you can believe anything that i say a young man of character perhaps that goes with the scotch costume i have read the scots are a noble people they haven't a thing on the americans you must know me better and discover but again her eyes had gone almost guiltily to that watch and when she raised them again they were not smiling but very strangely resolved. "'Monsieur, it is so hot. If you would get me a glass of sherbet?' "'Certainly.' Convention brought out the assent. Convention turned him about, and marched him dutifully toward the crowded table she indicated. But something deeper than Convention, some warning born of that too-often-consulted watch, and that strange look in her eyes, that uneasy fear and swift resolve, turned him quickly about again. Other couples had strolled between them. He hurried through and stepped back among the palms. The place was empty. The black domino was gone. He wasted one minute in assuring himself that she was not hidden in some corner, not mingled with the crowd, but the niche was deserted as a rifled nest. Then his eyes spied the door that the green decorations had conspired to hide, and he wrenched it open. He found himself on a little balcony overlooking the hotel garden. He knew the place in daytime palms and shrubs, and a graveled walk and painted chairs, where he had drunk tea with Ginny and watched a Russian tourist beautifully smoking cigarettes. Now the place was strange. Night and a crescent moon had wrought their magic, and the garden was a mystery of velvet dusks and ivory pallors. The graveled path ran glimmering beneath the magnolias. Over the wall's blankness the eucalyptus defined its crooked lines against the blue Egyptian sky. No living thing was there, Nothing. Or did that shadow stir, there, just at the path's end? Brider's lithe strength was swift. There was one breathless moment of pursuit. Then his hand fell with gripping fierceness upon the huddled dark figure that had sped so frantically to the tiny door in the garden's end. A moment more and she would have been through. His hand on her shoulder turned her towards him. Her eyes met his with a dash of desperation. He was unconscious how his own were blazing how queerly white his face had gone under its desert brown. She was actually running away. She had meant never to see him again. He had frustrated her, but the blow she had meant to deal him was still felt. His voice, when it came, sounded shaken. You were going to leave me? Strangely, her eyes changed. The defiance, the panic fear, faded. A cloud of slow despair welled up in them. What else? she said very softly. He did not lose his hold on her. He drew her back into the shadows with involuntary caution, and he felt her slender body trembling in his grasp. The tremors seemed to pass into his own. A sense of urgency was pressing upon him. He was not himself, not any self that he had known. He stood there in the Egyptian night, in the motley of a Scotch chieftain, grasping this mysterious creature of the masquerade. And he heard a voice that he did not know ask of her again and again. "'But why? Why? Why were you going?' "'It was not he was telling himself, "'and her eyes were telling him, "'as if she wanted to go. "'He knew what he knew. "'Those had been enchanted hours. "'Yet she had deceived and fled from him. "'Her eyes looked darkly back at him through the dusk. "'Because I must return to my own life.' "'Her voice was a whisper, "'and I did not want you to know. "'To know what? Who are you? "'Where were you going?' A confusion of conjecture, fantastic, horrible, impossible, was surging in him. Dim, vague, terrible things. Who are you, anyway? She looked away from him, to the door which she had tried to gain. No masquer, monsieur. For me there is no unveiling. Ryder's hand stiffened. He felt his blood stop a moment, as if his heart stood still. And then it beat on again in a furious turmoil of contradiction of this impossible thing That she was telling him. That door, monsieur, is to the lane, and in the lane another door leads to another garden, the garden of a girl you can never know. He was no novice to Egypt. Even while his credulity was still battling with belief, his mind had realized this thing that had happened, the astounding, unbelievable thing. He had heard something of those Turkish girls, daughters of rich officials, whose lives were such strange opposition. Of modernity and tradition. Indulgence and luxury. French governesses and French frocks. Freedom. Travel often. Paris, London perhaps, and then, as the girl eclipses the child, the veil. Still indulgence and luxury. Still books and governesses and frocks and motors and society, but a feminine society. Not a man in it. Not a caller. Not a friend. Not a lover. Not an interview, even with the man who is to be the husband until the bride is safe in the husband's home. Hidden women, secret, secluded lives, extinguished by tradition, a tradition against which their earlier years only had won modern emancipation. And she, this slim creature in the black domino, one of those invisibles? Stark amazement looked out of his eyes into hers. You, a Turk? he blurted. I, a Turk? Her head went suddenly high. She stiffened with defensive pride. I am ashamed, but for the thing I have done. That is a shameful thing. To steal out at night, to a hotel, to a ball, and to dance with a man, to tell him who I am. Oh, yes, I am much ashamed. I am as bold as a Christian. She tossed at him suddenly between mockery and malice. Still, his wonder and his trouble found no words, and the shadow on his face was reflected swiftly in her own. I beg you to believe, monsieur, that never before, never have I done such a thing. My greatest fault was to be out in the garden after sunset, when all Moslem women should be within, but my nurse was indulgent. Almost pleadingly she looked up at the young man. Believe this of me, monsieur. I would not have you think of me lightly. But to-night something possessed me. I had heard of the mask, and I had remembered the balls of the embassy where I danced when I was so young and so I slipped away. There was a garden-key that I had stolen long ago, and kept for another thing. I did not mean to dance, only to look on at the world again. "'Oh, my good lord,' said Jack Ryder. And then suddenly he asked, "'Are you—do you—whom do you live with?' And when she answered in surprise, "'But with whom but my father? He is Tufik Pasha.' He drew a long breath i thought you'd tell me next you were married he said limply the next moment they were laughing the sudden incredibly absorbed laughter of youth no husband i am one of the young revoltees the moderns and i am the only daughter of a most indulgent father well that's something to the good was Ryder's comment upon that he added but if that most indulgent father caught you he looked down at her the secret trouble of her answering look told him more than its assumption of courage This was no boarding-school girl lingering beyond hours. This was a high-born Moslem, risking more than he could well know. The escapade was suddenly serious, tremendously menacing. She answered faintly, I have no idea. The thing is so impossible. But, of course, she rallied her spirit to protest, I do not think they would sew me in a sack with a stone and drop me in the river like the autolists of yesterday. She added, her voice uncertain in spite of herself, I meant only to stay a moment. Which is the way? asked Jack briefly. With caution, he opened the gate into the black canyon of the lane. Silence and darkness, not a loiterer, only one of the furtive starved dogs, slinking back from some rubbish. The girl moved forward, and keeping closely at her side, he followed. They crossed to the other wall, and turned towards the right, stopping before the deeper shadow of a small pointed door set into the heavy brick of the high wall from her draperies the girl drew out a huge key she fitted it into the ancient lock and turned it carefully she pressed open the gate and stared anxiously into the gloom of the shadowy garden that it disclosed relief colored her voice as she turned to him all is quiet i am safe now and so good-bye monsieur and this is where you live Ryder whispered there in that wing she murmured slipping within the gate and he stole after her And looked across the garden, through a fringe of date palms, to the outlines of the buildings. Dim and dark showed the high walls, black as a prison, only here and there the pale orange oblong of a lighted window. Did you climb out the window? he murmured. From beneath the veil came a little sound of soft derision. But there are always bars, even in the garden windows of the Haremlink. No, I stole down by an old stair, that wing there, on the right. Barred on the garden and on the street, THE IMPREGNABLE WOODEN SCREENS OF THE MESHRABIA, THOSE WERE THE ROOMS WHERE THIS GIRL BESIDE HIM WAS TO SPEND HER LIFE, UNTIL THAT MOST INDULGENT FATHER WEARIED OF HER MODERNITY, AND TRANSFERRED HER TO OTHER ROOMS, AS BARRED AND SCREENED, IN THE PALACE OF SOME HUSBAND. THAT THOUGHT WAS BRUSHING RIDER, WITH OTHER THOUGHTS OF HER PRESENT RISK, OF HER LOVELY EYES VISIBLE AGAIN ABOVE THE VEIL, THOUGHTS OF THE STRANGENESS AND UNREALITY OF IT ALL there in the shrubbery of a pasha's garden the pasha's daughter whispering at his side what about your mother he asked her is she she is dead the girl told him with a drop in her voice and after a long moment of silence when i was so little but i remember her oh indeed i do she was french monsieur oh and so you i am french turk she whispered back that is so very often so in the harems of cairo "'She was so lovely,' said the girl wistfully. "'My father must have loved her very much. "'He never brought another wife here. "'Always I lived alone with my old nurse and the governesses. "'You had lessons?' "'Oh, nothing but lessons. "'All of that world which was shut away so soon, "'French and English and music and the philosophy. "'Oh, we Turks are what you call blue stockings, monsieur, "'shut away with our books and our dreams and our memories.' "'We are so young, and already the world is a memory.' "'Sometimes,' she said, with a tremor of suppressed passion in her still little tones, "'I could wish that I had died when I was very young and so happy when my father took me travelling in Europe. I played games on the decks of the ships. I had my tea with the English children. I went down into the hold to play with their dogs.' She broke off, between a laugh and a sigh. "'Dogs are forbidden to Muslims, but of course you know.' if you have been here two years. And emancipated as we may be, there is no changing the customs. We must live as our grandmothers lived, though we are not as our grandmothers are. With a French mother, you must be very far from what some of your grandmothers were. My poor French mother! Whimsically the girl sighed. Must I blame it on her, the spirit that took me to the ball? Tomorrow this will be a dream to me. I shall not believe in my shamelessness. And you too must forget. Forget? said Ryder under his breath forget and go positively you must go now monsieur it is very dangerous here it is there was a light dancing in his hazel eyes it is more dangerous every moment but i mean her confusion betrayed itself but i mean that you are magic black magic he murmured bending over the black domino the crescent moon had found its way through a filigree of boughs faintly its exploring ray lighted the contour of that shrouded head, touched the lovely curves of her arched brows and the tender pallor of the skin about those great wells of dark eyes. From his own eyes a flame seemed to pass into hers. Breathlessly they gazed at each other, like dim shadows in a garden of still enchantment. And then, as from a palpable clasp, she tried to slip away. Truly, I must go! It is so late! Ryder's heart was pounding within him. He did not recognize this state of affairs. It was utterly unrelated to anything that had gone before in his merry, humorous, rather clear-sighted, and wary young life. He felt dazed and wondering at himself, and irresponsible, and appalled. But deeper than all else, he felt eager and exultant, and strangely, furtively determined about something that he was not owning to himself, something that leaped off his lips in the low murmur to her, "'But tomorrow night I shall see you again.' She caught her breath. Oh, never again! To-night has no to-morrow. Outside this gate, he persisted, I shall wait, and other nights after that, for I must know if you are safe. See, I am very safe now, for if I were missed there would be running and confusion. He only drew a little closer to her. To-morrow night or another I shall come to this door. It must not open to you. It is a forbidden door, forbidden as that fortieth door in the old story there are thirty and nine doors in your life monsieur that you may open but this is the forbidden i shall be waiting he insisted "Tomorrow night or another she moved her head in denial neither tomorrow nor another night again their eyes met he bent over her he knew a gleam of sharpest wonder at himself as his arms went swiftly round that shrouding drapery and then all duality of consciousness was blotted out in the rush of his young madness For within that drapery was the soft human sweetness of her. His arms tightened, his face bent close, and through the sheer gauze of her veil, his lips pressed her lips. Someone was coming down the walk. Footsteps crunched the gravel. Like a wraith, the girl was out of his arms. In anger or alarm, his whirling senses could not know, although it was their passionate concern. But his last gleam of prudence got him through the gate he heard her locking after. And then, for her sake, He fled. End of chapter two. Chapter three of the fortieth door. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The fortieth door by Mary Hastings Bradley. Chapter three, in the Pasha's palace. Nearer sounded the footsteps on the graveled walk, and in frightened haste the girl drew out the key from the gate, and slipped away into the shrubbery, grateful for the blotting shadows. At the foot of a rose-bush she crouched to thrust the key into a hole in the loose earth, covering the top and drawing the low branches over it. "'Amy!' came a guarded call. "'Amy!' Still stooping, she tried to steal through the bushes, but the thorns held her, and she stood up, pulling at her robes. "'Yes? Miriam?' she said faintly, and, desperately freeing herself, she hurried forward towards the dark, bulky figure of her old nurse, emerging now into the moonlight. "'Alhamdulillah! glory to God!' ejaculated the old woman, but cautiously under her breath. "'Come, quickly! he is here, thy father! And thou in the garden at this hour! But come!' And urgently she gripped the girl's wrist, as if afraid that she would vanish again into the shadows of the shrubbery. Amy felt her knees quake under her. My father, she murmured, and her voice died in her throat. Had he discovered? Had someone seen her slip out, or recognized her at the ball? The panic-stricken conjecture surged through her in dismaying confusion. She tried to beat down her fear, to think quickly, to rally her force, but her swimming senses were still invaded with the surprise of those last moments at the gate, her heart still beating with the touch of Ryder's arms about her of that long deep look that kiss beyond all else that kiss little rivers of fire were running through her veins shame and proud anger set up their swift reactions oh what wings of wild incredible folly had brought her to this to be kissed like like a dancing girl by a man an unknown an american how could he how could he after all this kindness to hold her so lightly and yet, there had been no lightness in his eyes, those eager, shining young eyes, so gravely concerned, but she could not stop to think of this thing. Her father was waiting. he came in like a fury. The old nurse was panting as they scurried up the walk together and asked for you, and your room empty, your bed not touched. Oh, Allah's wrath upon me! I went trotting through the house, mad with fear, up to the roofs and down to the garden, sending him word that you were dressing. "'that he would not know the only child of his house "'was a shameless one, devoid of sense. "'But there is no harm in a garden,' breathed the girl, "'her face hot with shame. "'To-night was so hot. "'Is there no cool upon the roof?' "'But the roses. "'Can roses not be brought to you? "'Have you no maids to attend you?' "'I am tired of being attended. "'Can I never be alone?' "'Alone in the garden, a pretty talk. "'Eh! I will tell thy father. "'I will have a stock put to this. "'Hush!' "'Would you have him here?' She admonished in a sudden whisper, as they opened the little door at the foot of the dark well of spiral stairs. Like conspirators, they fled up the staircase, and then, with fumbling haste, the old nurse dragged off the girl's mantle and veil, muttering at the pins that secured it. She shook out the pale-flowered chiffon of her rumpled frock, and gathered back a strand of her dark, disordered hair. "'Say that you are on the roofs!' she besought her. For a moment... The girl put the warm rose of her cheek against the old woman's dark, wrinkled one. "'But you are good, daddy," she said softly, using the Turkish word for familiar old servants." With a sound of mingled vexation and affection, Miriam pushed her ahead of her into the drawing-room. It was a long, dark room, on whose soft, buff carpet the little gilt chairs and sofas were set about with the empty expectancy of a stage scene in a French salon. French were the shirred silk shades upon the electric lamps, French the music upon the chic rosewood piano. And then, as if some careless property man had overlooked them in changing the act, two window balconies of closely carved old wood, of solidly screening mashrubillé wood, jutted out from one cream-tinted wall, and above a gilded sofa, upholstered in the delicate fabric of the Rue de la Paix, hung a green satin banner embroidered in silver with a phrase from the koran tufik pasha was at one side of the room filling his match-case he was in evening dress a ribbon of some order across a rather swelling shirt-bosom a red fez upon his dark head at his daughter's entrance he turned quickly with so sharp a gleam from his full somewhat protuberant black eyes that her guilty heart fairly turned over in her It made matters no more comforting to have Miriam packed from the room. She would deny it all, she thought desperately. No, she would admit it and implore his indulgence. She would admit nothing but the garden. She would admit the ball. She would never admit the young man. With conscious eyes and flushing cheeks, woefully aware of dew-drenched satin slippers and an upsettingly hammering heart, Amie presented the young image of irresolute confusion. To her surprise there was no outburst. Her father was suddenly gay and smiling, with a flow of pleasant phrases that invited her affection. In his good-humour—and Tufik Pasha liked always to be kept in good-humour—he had touches of that boyish charm that had made him the enfant-galter of Paris and Vienna, as well as Cairo and Constantinople an enfant no more in the robustly rotund forties his cheerful self-indulgence demanded still of his environment that smiling acquiescence that kept life soft and comfortable and now it suddenly struck amy through her tense alarm that his smile was not a spontaneous smile but was silently uneasily asking his daughter not to make something too unpleasant for him that something that had brought him here at an unprecedented midnight that had kept him waiting until she, supposedly, should rise and dress. If it were not then a knowledge of her escapade, the relief from that fear made everything else bearable. She was even able to entertain, with a certain welcome, the alternative alarm that he had decided to marry again, that nightmare from whose realization the unknown gods, or more truly the unknown goddesses, of the Cairene demimonde, had assisted to save her. There was a furtive excitement about him that fanned the supposition. Then, quite suddenly, the illuminating lightning cut the clouds. "'My dear child, I have news—really important news for you. "'If I have not been discussing your future,' said Tufik Pasha, staring with stern nonchalance ahead and determinedly unaware of her instant stiffening of attention, "'I have by no means been neglectful of it. "'Today, indeed to-night.' There has been a consummation of my plans it is not to every daughter that a father may hurry with such an announcement her first feeling was a merciful relief he knew nothing then of the ball she could breathe again it was her marriage that had brought him no new danger that but the eternal menace that she had always to dread but how many times had he promised that she should have no unknown husband imposed by tradition how many times had she indulged in dreams of europe of bright free romance. And now he was off on some tangent from which it would need all her coaxing wit to divert him. With wide eyes painfully intent, her little jeweled fingers very still in their locked grip in her lap, the color draining from her cheeks, she sat waiting for the revelation. What was it all? Had he really decided upon something? Upon someone? Tufik Pasha appeared in no hurry to inform her. He wandered rather confusedly into a rambling speech about her age and her position, and the responsibilities of life, and his inabilities to prevent their reaching her, and about his very tender affection for her, and his understanding of all those girlish reticences and reluctances which made innocent youth so exquisite, while silently his daughter hung her head, and wondered what he would be saying if he knew that she had broken every canon of seclusion and convention, had talked and danced with a man. His astonishment would be so horrific that she flinched even from the thought, and if he knew, moreover, that this man had caught her and kissed her. She told herself that she was disgraced for life. She had a dreamy desire to close her eyes and lean back and dream on about that disgrace. But she must listen to her father. He was talking now about the powers of wealth, not merely the nominal riches of his somewhat precarious political affiliations, but solid, sustaining, invested, and invulnerable wealth. Unexpectedly, Amy laughed. He must be very plain, she declared, her face brightening with mockery, if you take so long to tell me his name. Not, she added to herself under her breath, that any name would weigh a feather's difference. On the contrary. And the pasha's eyes met hers frankly for the first time, and he seemed delighted to indulge a laugh. He has the reputation of good looks. He is much a la mode. "'Beautiful and golden. Did you meet him just to-night, my father?' Amy went on, in that light audacity which he had loved to indulge. Now he smiled, but his glance went uneasily away from her. "'Not at all. This is a serious affair, you understand. The devil of a serious affair.' And for the first time she felt she heard the accents of his candour. But again he was back to voluble protestation, This man was really an old friend. He boggled over the word, then got it out resonantly—a man he knew well. Not a young man, perhaps—certainly he was not going to hand his only daughter to any boy, a mere novice in life—but a man who could give her the position she deserved—not only a rich man, but an influential one. His name, he brought out at last, was Hamdi Bey. He was a general in the armies of the Sultan. It was a long moment before she could piece any shreds of recollection together. Hamdi Bey, a general! Why, that was a man her father had disliked. More than once he had dropped resentful phrases of his airs, his arrogance, had recounted certain clashes with malicious joy. And now he was planning? No, seriously announcing? A general? He must be terribly old. Not that it made any difference. Old or young, black or white, general or geekar, would mean nothing in her life. She would have none of him, none of him. Never would she endure the humiliation of being handed over like a toy, an idolisk, a slave. What had happened? She could only suppose that her father had been overcome by that wealth of the generals on which he had made her such a speech. Or perhaps his dislike of Hamdi had been founded on nothing but resentment of Hamdi's airs of superiority, and now that the bey was condescending to ask for her hand, her father's flattered appeasement was rushing into genial acceptance. Anything might be possible to Tufik Pasha's eternally youthful enthusiasms. She told her frightened heart that she was not afraid. Her father would never really fail her, and she would never surrender to this degradation. For all her fright and all her flinching from defiance, she defined in herself some hidden stuff of resistance, tenacious to endure, some strain of daring which had made her brave that wild escapade to night was it still the same night? Were the violins still playing, the people still dancing in their fairyland of freedom? Was that young man in the highland dress, that unknown American, was he back there dancing with some other girl? What was it he had said, to-morrow night and another night he would be there in the lane, if she would come? As if she would demean herself, after his rude affront, to steal again to the gate like a gardener's daughter. Her thoughts were so full of him, and now she had this new horror to face, this marriage to Hamdi Bey. Did her father dream that she would not resist? It was against such a danger that she had long ago stolen a garden key, a key to the outer world in which she had neither a friend nor a piaster to save her. "'My dear father,' she said entreatingly, "'please do not tell me that you really mean, that you really think you would like to—that you would consider this man?' He turned on her a suddenly, direct, confessing look. "'Amy, I have arranged this matter,' he added heavily. "'To-night. That is what I came to tell you.' In the silence that settled upon them, he finally ceased his effort to ignore her shocked dismay. He abandoned his airy pretense that the affair could possibly evoke her enthusiasm. He sucked at his cigarette like a rather sullen little boy. "'I have always indulged you, Amy.' he said at last, without looking round at her. I hope that you are not going to make me infernally sorry. I think you are making me infernally sorry, said an unsteady little voice. He looked about. His daughter was sitting very still upon the gilded sofa beneath the banner of Mahomet. As he regarded her, two great tears formed in her dark eyes and ran slowly down her cheeks. With a sound of impatience, he jumped to his feet, and began to pace up and down the room. This, he pointed out heatedly, to her was what a man got who indulged his daughter. This is what came of French and English governesses and modern ideas. After all he had done, more than any other father, to sit and weep, weep, at such a marriage, what did she expect of life? Was she not as other women? Did she never look ahead? Had she no pride, no ambition, no hopes? Did she wish never to marry then? to become an old meese like her English companion? I am but eighteen, she said quiveringly. Oh, my father, do not give me to this unknown. Unknown? Unknown? Do I not know him? But you promised. Angrily he gestured with his cigarette. Do I know what is good for you, or do I not? Have I your interest at heart? Tell me. Am I a savage? dolt? But you do not know what it is to be unhappy. I beg of you, my father. I should die with such a life before me, with such a man for my husband. I am too French, too like my mother. Ah! your mother! too French, are you! But what would you have in France?' he demanded, with the bursting appearance of a man making every effort to restrain himself within unreasonable bounds. Would not your parents there arrange your marriage? "'You might see, the fiancée,' he caught the words out of her mouth, "'but only for a time or two, after the arrangements.' and what is that? What more would you know than what your father knows? Are you a thing to be exhibited, given to a man to gaze at and appraise? I tell you no. You are my daughter, you bear my name, and when you marry, you marry in the sanctity of the custom of your father, and you go to your husband's house as his mother went to his father. Timidly she protested, but my mother and you do not speak of your mother. If she were here, she would counsel gratitude and obedience. He turned his back on her. "'This is what comes,' he muttered. "'Of this modernity, this education.' He pitched away his stub, as if he were casting all that he hated away with it. She had never seen him so angry. Helplessly she felt that his vanity and his word were engaged with the General more than she had dreamed. She felt a surge of panic at the immensity of the trouble before her. "'But, my father, if you love me—' "'No, my little one, if you love me—' With a sudden assumption of good humour, over the angry red mottling his olive cheeks, he came and sat beside her, putting his arm about her silent, shrinking figure. "'I am a weak fool, to stay and drink a woman's tears, as the saying goes,' he told her. "'But this is what a man gets for being good-natured. But tears or not, I know what is best. Come, a Have I not ever been fond of you?' He patted her hand with his own plump one where bright rings were sparkling deep in the encroaching flesh. Amy looked down with a sudden wild dislike, that soft, ingratiating hand with its dimples and polished nails, which thought it could pat her so easily into submission. It was nothing to him, she thought, chokingly, whether she was happy or unhappy. He had decided on the match, perhaps he had foreseen her protest, and plunged into it, so as to be committed against her entreaties and he was not stopped by any thought of her feelings after all her hopes after all he had promised but she told herself that she had never been secure beneath all her trust there had always been the silent fear slipping through the shadows like a serpent some instinct for character more precocious than her years had whispered through her fond blindness and initiated her into foreboding come now my dear he said heartily This is a surprise, of course, but after all you will find it is the best, much for the best. His voice died away, after a long pause. You may make the arrangements, she told him in a still, tenacious little voice, but you cannot make me marry him. I will never put on the marriage dress, never wear the diadem, never stir one step within his house. A complete silence succeeded this declaration. He got up violently from beside her. She did not dare to look at him. He was going away, she thought. It would be the beginning of war. She did not know what he would do, but she knew that she would endure it. And the gossip of the harems would be her protection. Her opposition, brooded through those feminine channels, would not be long in reaching Hamdi Bay. And no man could today be so callous of his pride or the world's opinion that he would be willing to receive such a revolting bride. Did her father think of that, that poor, pale power of hers? He stood irresolute, as if meditating a last exhortation, and then suddenly turned on her the haggard face of a violent despair. Would you see me ruined? he said passionately. Sharply he glanced about the room, at the far closed doors, where it was not inconceivable that old Miriam was lurking, and strode over to her and began talking very jerkily and huskily over her bent head i tell you that hamdi is making this a condition it is the price of silence of those papers back he came to me to-night i knew that hound of satan had been smelling about but i could not imagine as if between gentlemen at that she lifted her stupefied head her father with the face of a cornered fox she caught her breath with the shock of it her lips parted but only her mute eyes asked their startled questions hurriedly, shamefacedly, with angry resentments and self-justifications, he was pouring a flood of broken phrases at her. She caught unintelligible references to narrow laws and the imbecile English, to impositions binding only upon the fools, and then the word hashish. Sharply, then, the truth took its outlines. Her father had been smuggling in hashish. Hamdi, Bey, had discovered this, and Hamdi, Bey, unless silenced— had threatened betrayal. The danger was real. English laws were stringent. Vaguely the horrors loomed, arrest, trial. Even if he escaped, the scandal was ruin. Small wonder that her father had come flying upon the wings of his danger and its deliverance. Small wonder that his brow was wet and his lips dry and his eyes hard with terror. Thrown to the winds now his pretense of affection for Hamdi Bey, He hated and feared him. The old fox had done this, he declared, to get a hold upon him, for always there had been bad blood. And the bey had heard, of course, of the beauty of the Pasha's daughter. Some cousin had babbled, and undoubtedly the rumor of that beauty, Tufik Pasha received his inspiration upon the moment, but that was not gainsaying its truth, had determined the bey to find some vulnerable hold. He was like that, a soft-voiced sardonic devil, and this accursed business of the hashish had served his ends to-night he had come with his proofs so you see muttered tufik pasha what the devil of a serious business this is and how any talk of of unreadiness if you were not amiable for example to his cousin when she calls upon you might serve to anger him and so significantly his glance met hers Her eyes fell, stricken. The colour flooded her trembling face. She quivered with confused pain, with shame for his shame, with terror and fright, with a hot protective compassion that tore at her pride. She struggled against her dismay, trying for reassuring little words that would not come. Her heart seemed beating thickly in her throat. She never knew just what she said, what little broken words of pity, of understanding, of promise, she achieved but her father suddenly dropped beside her, with an abandon reminiscent of the enfant-gottet of his Paris days, and drew her hands to his lips, kissing their soft, quiescent palms. She drew one away, and placed it upon his dark head from which the fez had tumbled. For the moment she was sorry, as one is sorry for a hurt child, and her sorriness held her heart warm, in the glow of giving comfort. She had need of that warmth. For a cold tide was rising in her, a tide of chill, irresistible foreboding, for all the years of her life, for all the years. End of chapter three. Chapter four of the fortieth door. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Fortieth Door by Mary Hastings Bradley CHAPTER Four, EXPLANATIONS The remaining hours of Jack Ryder's night might be divided into three periods. There was an interval of astounding exhilaration, coupled with complete mental vacancy, during which a figure in a Scot's costume might have been observed by the astonished Egyptian moon, striding obliviously along the silent road to the Nile, past sleeping camels and snoring Durha merchants, a period during which his sole distinguishable sensation was the memory of enchanting eyes, of a voice low and lovely, of a slender figure in a muffling charchef, of the touch of soft lips beneath a gauzy veil. This period was succeeded by hours of utter incredulity in which he lay wide-eyed on the sleeping porch of McLean's domicile, and stared into the white cloud of his fly-net, and questioned High Heaven and himself. Had he really done this? Had he actually caught and kissed this girl, this girl whose name he did not know, whose face he had never seen, of whom he knew nothing but that she was the daughter of a Turk, and utterly forbidden by every canon of sanity and self-preservation? In the name of wonder, what had possessed him? THE NIGHT, THE MOON, THE MYSTERY OF THE UNKNOWN, IF HE HAD NEVER REALLY KISSED HER, HE MIGHT HAVE CONVINCED HIMSELF THAT HE HAD NEVER REALLY WANTED TO, BUT HAVING KISSED HER, HE LOOKED UPON HIMSELF AS A STRANGER, A STRANGER OF WHOM HE WOULD BE REMARKABLY wary IN THE DAYS AND NIGHTS TO COME, BUT A STRANGER FOR WHOM HE ENTERTAINED A SORT OF SECRET AMAZED RESPECT. THERE HAD BEEN AN UNDENIABLE DASH AND DARING TO THAT STRANGER. DURING THE THIRD PERIOD HE SLEPT. When he awoke late in the morning, and descended from a cold tub to a breakfast-room from which McLean had long since departed, he brought yet another mood with him, a mood of dark deep disgust and a shamed inclination to dismiss these events very speedily from memory. For that shadowy and rather shady affair he had abandoned the merry and delightful Jinny Jeffreys, and got himself involved now in the duty of explanations and peacemaking. What in the world was he going to say? He meditated a note, but he hated a lie on paper. It looked so thunderingly black and white. Besides, he could not think of any. Dear Ginny, awfully sorry I was called away. No, that wouldn't do. He could take refuge in no such vagueness. Unfortunately, he and Ginny were on such terms of old intimacy that a certain explicitness of detail was expected. Dear Ginny, I had to leave last night and take a girl home. No, she would ask about the girl. Jinny had a propensity for locating people. It wouldn't do. His masculine instinct for saying the least possible in a matter with a woman, and his ripening experience, which taught him to leave no mystery to awaken suspicion, wrestled with the affair for some time and then retired from the field. He compromised by telephoning Jinny briefly, and Jinny was equally as brief and twice as cool and cryptic, and promising to take her out to tea. He reflected that if he took her to tea he would really have to stay over another night, for it would be too late to regain his desert camp. But the circumstances seemed to call for some social amend. And no matter how many nights he stayed, he certainly was not going to lurk about that lane outside garden doors. He must have been mad, stark staring, March Hatter mad. That morning, during its remainder, he concluded his buying of supplies and saw to their shipment upon the boat that left upon the following morning. "'That noon he lunched with an assistant curator "'of the Cairo Museum, who found him a good listener. "'That afternoon he escorted Ginny Jeffries "'and her uncle and aunt, the Josiah Pendletons, "'to tea upon the little island in the Cairo Park, "'where white-robed Arabs brought them tea "'over the tiny bridge, and violins played "'behind the shrubbery, and white swans "'glided upon the blue lake and then he carried them off in a victoria to view the sunset from the citadel heights not a word about the dance except a general affirmative to mrs pendleton's question if he had enjoyed himself the pendletons had not stayed to look on for long and jinny had apparently not worn her bleeding heart upon her sleeve but this immunity could not last he could not hug the protecting pendletons to him for ever nor did he want to they waned upon him mrs pendleton's conversation was a perpetual do look at or dissertations from the guide-books already she had imparted a great deal of flinders petrie to him about his tombs mr pendleton was neither enthusiastic nor voluble but he was attacking the objects of their travels in the same thorough-going spirit that he attacked and surmounted the industrial obstacles of his career and he went to a great deal of persistent trouble to ascertain the exact dates of passing mosques and the conformations of their arches. The travelers had already done the citadel. They had climbed its rocky hill, they had viewed the Mahomet Ali mosque, and its columns and its carpets, and had taken their guides and their guidebooks word that it was an inferior structure, although so amazingly effective from below. They had looked studiously down upon the city, and tried to distinguish its minarets and towers and ancient gates. They had viewed with proper quizzicalness the imprint in the stone parapet of the hoof of that blind-footed horse, which the last of the Mamelukes, cornered and betrayed, had spurred from the heights. So now, no duty upon them, Ryder led them past the citadel, up the Mokadam hills behind it, to that hilltop on which stood the little ancient mosque of the Sheikh El Ghoshi, where the sunset spaces flowed round them like a sea of light, and the world dropped into miniature at their feet. Below them, in a golden haze, Cairo's domes and minarets were shining like a city of dreams. To the north, toy fields, vivid green, of rice and cotton lands, and the silver thread of the winding Nile, and all beyond, west and southwest, the vast, illimitable stretch of desert, shimmering in the opalescent air, sweeping on to the farthest edge of blue horizon. "'A nice resting-place,' said Jack Ryder appreciatively, of the tomb of the Sheik El gashi "'I presume the date is given,' Mr. Pendleton was murmuring, as he began to ferret with his bydecker. Mrs. Pendleton sighed sentimentally. "'He must have been very fond of nature.' "'He was very distrustful of his wives,' said Ryder, grinning. "'He had three of them, all young and beautiful.' "'I thought you said he was a saint,' murmured Jinny. To which interpolation he responded, "'Wouldn't three wives make any man a saint?' And resumed his narrative. "'And so he had his tomb made where he could overlook the whole city "'and observe the conduct of his widows.' "'They could move,' objected Miss Jeffreys. "'The female of the Mohammedan species is not the free agent that you imagine,' Ryder retorted, beginning with a smile and ending with a queer, reminiscent pang. "'He had a moment's rather complicated twinge of amusement at her reactions, "'if she should know that to an encounter with a female of the Mohammedan species was to be attributed his departure from her party last night. And then he remembered that he hadn't decided yet what to tell her, and the time was undoubtedly at hand. The time was at hand. The Pendletons were too thorough-going Americans, not to abdicate before the young. They did not saunter self-consciously away and make any opportunity for Jack and Jinny as sympathetic European chaperones might have done. They sat matter-of-factedly upon the rocks, while their competent young people betook themselves to higher heights. Conscientiously, Ryder was pointing out the pyramid fields. Giza, Abusir, Saqqara, Dasur, and now here, if you look, that's the Medun pyramid, that tiny, sharp prick. If we had glasses. Yes, but why didn't you like the ball? murmured Jinny the direct. I did like the ball very much. Then why didn't you stay? I I wasn't feeling top hole, he murmured lamely, wondering why girls always wanted to go back and stir up dogs that had gone comfortably to sleep. "'Did it come on suddenly?' said Jenny unsympathetically, her eyes still upon the pyramids. Something whimsical twitched at Jack Ryder's lips. "'Very suddenly, like thunder, out of China across the bay. "'I suppose that dancing with the same girl in succession brings on the seizures?' So she had noticed that. Not for nothing were those bright grey eyes of hers, not for nothing the red hair. "'Well, I rather think it did,' he said deliberately. "'That girl was a child who hadn't danced in four years,' so she said, "'and I believe her.' "'And Ginny received what he intended to convey. "'Stepped on your buckled shoon and you felt a martyr? "'But why bolt? "'There were other girls who had danced within four years.' "'I went into the garden,' he murmured. "'The fact is I was feeling awfully queer,' he brought out in an odd tone. "'Queer was a good word for it. "'He let it go at that. He couldn't do better. Jinny looked suddenly uncertain. Her peak was streaked with compunction. She had been horribly angry with him for running away, and she remembered his opposition to the idea enough to be suspicious of any disappearance. But there was certainly an accent of embarrassed sincerity about him. Perhaps he had been ill. Sudden seizures were not unknown in Egypt, and for all his desert brown he didn't look very rugged. She murmured, I hope you hadn't taken anything that disagreed with you. Hmm. It rather agreed with me at the time, said Jack, and then brought himself up short. I expect I haven't looked very sharp after myself, but Jinny did not wholly renounce her idea. Does it always take you at dances you don't want to go to? That's unfair. I came, you know you came and went. I'd have been all right if I hadn't come. He murmured, and Jinny felt suddenly ashamed of herself. Do you suppose that you would stay all right if you came to dinner? "'She offered pacificably. "'It's our last night, you know, till we come back from the Nile. "'I wish I could.' "'Rider stopped short. "'Now why couldn't he? "'Certainly he didn't intend.' "'But his tongue took matters promptly out of his hesitation's hands. "'Fact is, I've an engagement,' he added, appeasingly. "'That's why I was so keen on getting you for tea.' "'And Jinny told him appreciatively that it was a lovely tea and a lovely view.' "'We're going to be at the hotel, I expect,' she threw out carelessly. "'And if you get through in time—' Rather hastily he assured her that, indeed, if he got through in time. "'She was a nice girl, was Ginny, a pretty girl, with just the right amount of red in her hair. Sanity would have sent him to the hotel to dine with her. Sanity would also have sent him to the jockey club with McLean. Certainly Sanity had nothing to do with the way that he kept himself to himself after his farewells at the hotel with the pendletons and took him to an out-of-the-way greek cafe where he dined very badly upon stringy lamb and sodden baklava later he wandered restlessly about dark medieval streets where squat groups were clustered about some coffee-house door intent upon a game of checkers or some patriarchal story-teller recounting very probably a bandied narration of the thousand and one nights through other open doors drifted the exasperatingly nasal twang of cairene music, and idly pausing, Ryder could see above the red fezes and turbans that topped the cross-legged audiences the dark, sleek, slowly revolving body of some desert dancing girl. Irresolutely, he drifted on to the Aspakia quarters, to the streets where the withdrawn camels and donkeys had left preeminent the carriages and motors of that stream of continental nightlife. Which sets towards Cairo in the season Russian dukes and German millionaires, Viennese actresses and French singers, and ladies of no avowed profession, gamblers, idlers, diplomats, drifters, vivid flashes of color in the bizarre kaleidoscopic spectacle. It was quite dark now. The last pale gleam of the afterglow had faded, and the blue of the sky, deepening and darkening, was pierced with the thronging stars. It was very warm, no breeze but a fitful stirring in the tops of the feathery palms. The streets were growing still. Only from some of the hotels came the sound of music from lighted open windows. Jinny would be rather expectant at her hotel. He could, of course, drop in for a few minutes, since he was so near. He walked past the hotel. Jinny would be packing, or ought to be, a pity to disturb her, and his dusty tweeds and travelling cap was no calling costume. He walked past again and this time he paused, on the brink of a dark canyon of a lane, running back between walls, hung with bougainvillea. Quite suddenly he remembered that he had told that girl, whose name he did not know, that he would come. It was a definite promise. It was an obligation. He could do nothing less. It might be unwelcome, absurd, a nuisance, but really it was an obligation. He sauntered down the lane, keeping carefully in the shadow. He loitered within the deep-set door, and felt a queer throb of emotion at the sight of it. And so, sauntering and loitering, he waited in the darkening night, promising himself disgustedly through the dragging moments to clear out and be done with this, but still interminably lingering, his pulses throbbing with that disowned expectancy. Very cautiously the gate began to open. End of chapter 4